0: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA now on sale. Terms apply. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungara people. I pay my respects to Aboriginal elders past and present. It's Thursday the 18th of January 1883, just after eight in the morning, and the prisoner is now at liberty to leave Adelaide Jail. No longer confined behind stone walls and iron bars, no longer in the shadow of the gallows, free to make a new start in the colony of South Australia. But this freedom might still be cut short, might still come to a brutal and bloody end. See, leaving the jail actually escalates the risk of recapture. And this time, they really might execute. That's because technically, there's still a price on this prisoner's head. Not wanted dead or alive, just wanted dead. I'm Michael Adams, and this is Murder on the High Seas, which is part one of the three-part Forgotten Australia episode, the Birdman of Adelaide Jail. Part 2, Dark Threats and Darker Secrets, and Part 3, called Not Dead But Gone, will go on general release next week. But if you're an Apple or Patreon supporter, you can hear them right now ad free. By becoming a supporter, you'll help me to make this podcast. And that includes funding research materials so that no stone's left unturned to bring you these stories. And as a thank you, you'll get a show shout out, early ad-free access to every episode and exclusive bonus shows that feature everything from ghosts and scandals to bushfires and murders. You can also now get a one-off free trial of all early ad-free and exclusive episode content via Apple and Patreon. That means access to everything, including part two and part three of this episode right now, without paying anything, so long as you cancel before the free trial period ends. The relevant Apple and Patreon links are in your show notes. A big thank you to recent supporters. They are Matt Hasty, Greg Jericho, John Marshall, Katie Johnson, Tom Dale, Judith Connor, Jennifer Palomo, Jason Ball, Carolyn Foley, Abby Smeets, Mick PD, Cleopatra Supertramp, and Johnny Karen. If you've become an Apple supporter and you'd like a shout out, you'll need to send me an email message at Forgotten Australia at gmail.com. Also, in very good news, just like Trove was fully funded earlier this year, so too the State Library of Victoria raised the money it needed to digitise the Sun News pictorial. That means we'll all soon be able to access this incredible resource via Trove. So thanks to everyone who signed the Trove petition, who wrote to politicians and or chipped in with a donation to the State Library of Victoria's Appeal. Finally, my new book, The Murder Squad, is out now. You can hear me read an excerpt in an episode from earlier in July. And if you'd like to hear me discuss The Murder Squad, check out the interview I did with Jen Kelly for her excellent history podcast, In Black and White, and the chat I had with Michelle Laurie for her similarly top-notch show, Australian True Crime. Links to The Murder Squad and the In Black and White and Australian True Crime interviews are also in your show notes. Alright, on with The Birdman of Adelaide Jail Part 1, Murder on the High Seas. Where and when do we belong? And what worth do we have? That's what this episode is about. All creatures great and small, how they become what they are, and how they're perceived and received in different places and at different times. So, while you might be a widely respected scientific intellect of your era, That doesn't mean that history won't remember you as an environmental criminal whose ignorance was worsened by arrogance. Then again, you might be a lowly prisoner looking at a death sentence for murder, when not so long ago, you were actually paid and praised for slaughtering your fellow man in a historic war. Or you might be a feral creature, utterly despised for your destructive ways, who's nevertheless fated to perform the unlikely work of salving and even saving a soul. That it's all relative was famously summed up by the American agricultural scientist George Washington Carver when he said, quote, A weed is a flower growing in the wrong place. In my former life, I worked for the movie magazine Empire. It was a good job, and I got to meet a lot of very talented people. One of these was the writer and director, Jane Campion. This was about 15 years ago, when she was promoting her historical drama, Bright Star, which is about the poet John Keats and his lover, Fanny Braun. We met at a restaurant in Surrey Hills in Sydney, and during lunch, Jane Campion gave me a delicate little slip of paper, on which she'd handwritten, Hope is the thing with feathers. This isn't John Keats, but instead, Emily Dickinson. My companion didn't make a big deal of handing over this little literary fortune cookie. It was just something she liked to do, sharing words that had inspired her. I recalled that moment and that memento when working on this episode. Shamefully, I have to admit that this was the first time I ever actually read the poem whose first line is also its title. I guess it's a case of better late than never. And a belated extra thank you to Jane Campion for pointing me to Hope is the thing with feathers That perches in the soul And sings the tune without the words And never stops at all And sweetest in the gale is heard And sore must be the storm That could abash the little bird That kept so many warm I've heard it in the chillest land And on the strangest sea Yet never, in extremity, it asked a crumb of me. This poem, which pictures each of us with the bird of hope perched inside us forever, was written around 1861, but it wouldn't be published until 1891. So that meant it was unknown during the events that follow. We start not with a bird, but with a Burns, Englishman William Burns. He was born around 1855 in Devonport which is the dock part of the town of Plymouth. Taken with East Stonehouse this urban sprawl which was known as the three towns was a filthy and disease-ridden place. Not long before William Burns was born an observer would write quote, "Plymouth and its keys and ships Sailors and boatmen, slop sellers and marine store dealers, warehouses and wharfs, public houses and eating houses, mud and dirt are all before us. They were all around William Burns from the day he entered the world and it must have been a tough place to grow up. Even so, the lad had enough education that he could read and write and he received some religious instruction at Sunday school. But like so many, he went to sea when he was still a boy. Even as a grown man, William Burns was a slight figure. Brown eyes, sallow face, brown hair, standing about 5'3". He wasn't a handsome fellow by any account. And maybe this, and his life before the mast, accounted for why he was single. But everyone's good for someone, and William was beloved by his old widowed mum, and he partially supported her with his earnings. Yet Burns was also to be found spending his money in port in places of ill repute between his long voyages. On the 1st of May 1882, when Burns was 27, having good discharge certificates from his many former masters, he signed on as an able seaman aboard the British ship Douglas. Now Burns would serve under Captain John Wilson. Douglas was three-masted, square-rigged, and measured 240 feet from bow to stern. The ship sailed from Hull on the 29th of June, 1882. Douglas was one of half a dozen to leave the port that Thursday. As recorded by the newspaper, the Shipping and Mercantile Gazette, conditions were perfect for starting a sea voyage. There was a northwesterly wind, and it was a fine English midsummer day. Douglas and crew would be seeing a lot more of the sun. They were bound first for the Swedish port of Calyx, just 60 miles south of the Arctic Circle, where, at this time of year, the sun didn't set until around 11 at night, before rising again just two hours later. In this surreal landscape, tons and tons of Baltic timber was loaded onto the Douglas. This cargo was destined for the other side of the world, the Australian city of Adelaide, where it'd be used to build and fit out colonial homes and businesses. While Douglas was still being loaded at Calix, there was minor trouble aboard. This took the form of words between Captain Wilson and his second mate, Henry Lowton, who, like William Burns, had signed on to Douglas a couple of months back. 47 years old, Henry Lowton was a big, burly bloke, the largest man on the ship, who stood nearly six feet tall. The 1881 United Kingdom census, as found at Ancestry.com.au, shows that when Henry Lowton wasn't at sea, he lived in North Shields in Yorkshire with his wife Jane and their 12-year-old son Henry Jr. Unlike William Burns, who'd long been a swabby, Henry Sr. had been a second mate since 1871. A scan of his original papers can also be seen at Ancestry as part of the UK and Ireland Masters and Mates certificates database. Issued by the Lords of the Committee of Privy Council for Trade, this certificate of competency is an attractive document. You can imagine that Henry Lowton took justifiable pride in its possession. After all, the certificate was proof of his place in the world and proof of his authority over other men. Henry Loughton had also signed on to Douglas with good discharges from his former captains. But the second mate appeared to have a quite brusque manner. The subject of his disagreement with Captain Wilson wasn't recorded, but Lowton was clearly a confident man. Confident enough to say to his commanding officer words to the effect of, If you don't like me, sir, you can discharge me here and now. But Captain Wilson hadn't felt that was necessary, and the matter was resolved. They might have even thought it was good to clear the air in the interest of plain sailing. After all, ahead of them lay four months on the high seas. The Douglas departed from Calix on the 6th of August 1882. Nearly seven weeks later, the ship was still in the Northern Hemisphere. Off the coast of the Western Sahara, about 250 miles or a day sailing from the Cape Verde Islands. Their time at sea had been uneventful, the crew all performing their duties without complaint. That was good because, though they'd come a long way, they still had more than two months and 10,000 miles to go before they reached Australia. While Douglas couldn't make the speed of a steamer or a clipper, the ship could go faster with its studding sails hoisted. These were extra sails that were set out over the water alongside the regular, square-rigged sails on each of the three masts. Studding sails were fine when conditions were fair, but when things turned foul, keeping them raised risked damaging the sails or breaking their booms. Douglas had its studding sails up on Saturday, the 23rd of September. That morning had marked the autumnal equinox in the northern hemisphere. Unlike Calyx with its midnight sun, the day and night would be of almost equal length. That evening, around about half past ten, with his ship making six knots, Captain Wilson was on the poop deck. Located atop the aft cabin, the poop commanded the best view of the Douglas and of the sea and sky ahead. Captain Wilson saw that the stars and the moon were being swallowed by cloud. Lightning was flashing and thunder rumbling. Captain Wilson told second mate Henry Loton to take in the studding sails. Loton relayed the order to the 10 men of the night watch. These included English sailors Robert Bible, George Cooper, and Samuel Harris. Then there was a British boy named George Clark who was just 14. Also on the night watch, a sailor from Finland named J. L. Orkusson and another boy from the Netherlands named Matthias Day. Then there was 27 year old William Burns, originally from Devonport. Captain Wilson watched from the poop. 150 feet along the deck, his crew prepared to pull down the main topgallant studding sails. But then they switched focus. Now they seemed to be getting set to lug down the lower studding sails. Then the men stopped work altogether. Captain Wilson shouted, What's the matter? He didn't get a response. Seconds earlier, on the forecastle, which is the forward part of the ship, Henry Lowton and William Burns had exchanged short, sharp words. Lowton raised his hand. Burns lunged forward. Loton's hand then went to his neck. Burns, he said, You have mur Burns, you have murdered me, was what he was trying to say. Loton's hand fell from his neck. Blood cascaded onto his clothes and splashed the deck as he fell back against the spar amidships. William Burns stepped back and returned his knife to the sheaf that hung from his belt. Seaman Robert Bible was near to Henry Loton and he looked at William Burns. You have stabbed the man, he said. Burns replied, I know I have. Captain Wilson's second cry then rang out along the deck. What's the matter? That was when Robert Bible shouted his reply. The second mate is stabbed, sir. In the moments that followed, the captain ordered the men of the watch to carry Henry Lowton to a crew cabin quickly. Who did it? The captain asked. Burns said, I did, sir. As the blood-covered Henry Loughton was taken through the cabin doorway, he gave a sigh and a gurgle and by the time they lowered him to the deck, he was dead. Captain Wilson examined the fatal wound. It was a gory gash, two inches across, triangular in shape with a piece of flesh hanging free at the bottom, like a blade had been plunged in and then twisted. Looking up, Captain Wilson saw William Burns standing in the doorway, and he caught the man's eye. Burns, this is a fearful thing you have done to take away a man's life for nothing at all, he said. Burns responded, I could not help it. He should not have struck me. Captain Wilson then took this confessed killer into custody and locked him in a cabin. Who was William Burns? Why had he just killed Henry Lowton? What had the second mate done, if anything, to provoke such a fate? Who'd said what? Who'd been where? What had other sailors seen and heard? William Burns' life would depend on the answers to these questions. Answers that he gave. Answers that his shipmates gave. But these answers could not be formally given there and then. While this killing... Whether murder, manslaughter or justifiable homicide had been committed on the high seas, Douglas was a British ship and those aboard were subject to British law. That meant that William Burns would have to face British justice once the ship reached the British colony of South Australia. Until then, this killer would have to be kept in hand irons and under lock and key. But that presented all sorts of problems practical and supernatural the day after henry Lowton was killed he was buried at sea with the usual religious ceremony while this reverential practice was a regular occurrence it also came tinged with superstition in the 2011 book the sea their graves an archaeology of death and remembrance in maritime culture Historian David J. Stewart writes, quote, To the maritime mind, the sea was alive with a spirit of unquiet dead, both on the surface and under the waves. Not all of these ghosts were malevolent, but all were feared. By performing the proper rites, sailors hoped to ensure that the dead would rest peacefully instead of returning to trouble the living. The key word is Hoped. Meanwhile, murders on the high seas were associated with ghosts and with curses. Having a killer aboard was very bad luck. In 1885, Fletcher S. Bassett, a U.S. Navy officer, published a massive book called Legends and Superstitions of the Sea and Sailors. In it, he quoted an old English ballad, which went thus. "'Twas so the ancient skipper spake, his face with terror pale. "'There's here some murderous wretch on board, hinders the ship to sail. "'Up men will cast the lot about, on whom it falls we'll see. "'And there sails a villain here? So overboard shall he.'" Better to throw a murderer into the sea than keep him on your ship. But of course, tossing a murderer into the sea was murder in itself. Bad luck upon bad luck. Newspapers were to report that the killing on the Douglas cast a gloom over the ship. Whatever supernatural fears they might have had, the men expressed their very real and very rational concerns to Captain Wilson. They were afraid that Burns would break free from the cabin and kill one, some, or all of them. Something had to be done. Captain Wilson could ease these fears and he got the ship's carpenter to make a strong box out on the deck in which Burns could be confined. The men inspected this little wooden house and were satisfied he couldn't get out. So they were safe from what Burns might do to them physically. Yet superstition said that just by having him aboard, Douglas might now face dangerous storms. In September 1882, William Burns was in irons aboard the British ship Douglas and bound for Adelaide. And that made him very unusual in Australian history. Firstly, convicts were never sent to South Australia. And secondly, by 1882, it had been nearly 15 years since the end of penal transportation to Australia. William Burns was thus a rare English bird. And that made him very unlike the English birds that were then the bane of South Australia. Yet, just 20 years earlier, English house burrows hadn't been rare in the colonies. They hadn't existed at all in Australia. But soon after they were introduced, they were everywhere and in plague proportions. Yet, unlike William Burns, who might still be acquitted at trial... Sparrows in South Australia had recently been found guilty, convicted, and sentenced to death. In late 1881, the colonial government had set an official bounty. There were wholesale prices for wholesale slaughter. Bring the local sergeant of police a dozen sparrow heads and he'd pay you sixpence. Hand over 100 sparrow eggs and you'd pocket two shillings and sixpence. In the first half of 1882, the government had paid more than 100 pounds for 20,000 plus heads and nearly 150,000 eggs. Yet this South Australian extermination effort was only the most recent battlefront in the colonies-wide war on this devastating and destructive pest. Yet what made the sparrow problem worse was that it had been entirely predictable and thus entirely preventable. Convicts were sent to Australia from 1788 to 1868. This policy and its people comprised the bedrock of white colonisation. It's a well-documented and well-known history. But as transportation was nearing its end, another far less known program of live importation was getting underway. The first fleet had introduced non native fauna and flora that was deemed necessary for the colony's survival. Other animals and plants followed, many introduced by private individuals for sporting or decorative purposes. The most infamous of these were European wild rabbits, 13 of which were released for hunting purposes in Victoria in 1859. It wouldn't be long before this was considered an ecological disaster. But in the early 1860s, turning those bunnies loose was considered a splendid example of exactly the right thing to do. That was go to every effort and expense to import desirable animals, be they furry, feathered or finned, and do so in sufficient quantities that when set free, they might go forth and multiply. See, while Australia was a land of riches, it was also home to an unseemly number of Of unusual, useless and often ugly native creatures. They weren't beautiful or melodious and they were no good for hunting or for eating. At least that's what most whitefellas reckoned both in Australia and back home in Mother England. Happily, like minds in London in 1860 established the Acclimatization Society. The goal was to establish a system of imperial fauna and flora exchange that could terraform the empire upon which the sun never set. Like misguided scientific Robin Hoods, the acclimatizers sought to steal from the rich and give to the poor. It was stuff the British stole to share. So take this or that flower or animal from this or that country or colony and give it a new home in another place that flew the Union Jack. Native animals from Russia or Peru might be exported to improve India or Singapore. And creatures from those colonial outposts might be shared to Hong Kong, Canada or the British Isles. As for Australia, it didn't have much that was worth exporting. Sure, there were creatures with novelty value, such as kangaroos, koalas, and black swans that might end up in zoos, in circuses, or roaming private estates. But these animals weren't desirable anywhere in any great numbers. However, Australia had unlimited potential as an import market, because there was no end to what you could do to improve the place. If you could establish deer and salmon, then they'd provide sport that was fondly recalled from England. They'd also put on the dinner table cherished fare not previously tasted fresh in the Australian colonies. Larks and nightingales, meanwhile, could offer music as a melodious echo of back home. Certainly, the songs of these birds were infinitely preferable to the insane cackinations of the laughing jackasses, as kookaburras were then called. And who wouldn't prefer to gaze upon the majestic peacock than the drab lyrebird? It was true that small birds, such as the English house and hedge sparrows, didn't provide sport, meat, music, or much in the way of beauty, unless you were overly fond of the colour brown. But sparrows did eat grubs and bugs that ate fruit and vegetable crops. So they too could have their place in the Australian colonies. Now, the acclimatizers thought that if superior imported animals should happen to push their inferior indigenous brethren from the brush, the branches, and the brooks, then so much the better. Remaking Australia in England's image was the dream. Edward Wilson was a leading light of such thinking. Wilson was an important figure in Victorian politics, social affairs, and scientific inquiry. These days, though, he's perhaps best remembered as the owner of Melbourne's The Argus. After Wilson took control, he transformed the newspaper's fortunes and set it on a course for a century of continuous publication. Edward Wilson was very progressive. In 1856, he was allowed to present to the new Victorian governor a list of 26 desirable reforms. Top of Wilson's list was Justice to the Aborigines. A year later, Wilson condemned Victoria's brutal and ineffective penal discipline system and said that capital punishment should be abolished. The man also established a ragged school for poor children. Given that it was then mainstream thinking to endorse racial subjugation and extermination, to applaud flogging and hanging, and to simply shrug one's shoulders at poverty's generational effects, Edward Wilson was definitely a gentleman who was ahead of his time. But it was his later years that created his most lasting and unfortunate legacy. As his Australian Dictionary of Biography entry tells us, quote, His chief interest early in his retirement was the introduction of European birds, fish, and animals. In February 1861, Edward Wilson established the Victorian Acclimatisation Society, and he'd go on to help found branches outside of Melbourne and in other colonies. Shortly afterwards, he made an extended visit to England, where his entreaties via an intermediary reached Queen Victoria. Her Majesty gave her royal blessing to the activities of the acclimatisation societies at home and in her colonies. This included authorising a survey for far-flung officials to answer in which they were to advise of the best flora and fauna to be found in territories under their control that was suitable for export. Her Majesty's government also instructed that Royal Navy ships should assist wherever possible in the transportation of said beasts and botanicals. Edward Wilson and his acclimatization society enjoyed wide support in Victoria. The society's members included Ferdinand von Mueller. As the Victorian government's botanist, von Mueller was in charge of the Royal Botanic Gardens. And as president of the Royal Society of Victoria, he was the man behind exploration missions, including Wilson's ill-fated expedition. As found in their annual reports, the list of financial donors to the Victorian Acclimatization Society included hundreds of the colony's best and brightest. Additionally, the Victorian government awarded it large sums of money. So, acclimatizers were mainstream, and they had a long wish list of animals. Sparrows were highly desired. Yet getting these small birds across the seas alive and in large quantities was easier said than done. In 1861, Edward Wilson sent two shipments, but all the birds escaped or died in transit. But he and his acclimatizer brethren were not giving up. Over the next two years, they succeeded in bringing in dozens and dozens of sparrows. One society member's account of his importation showed just how difficult it could be. The little birds went crazy when confined to cages. Yet, once released, they'd happily sit at their captors' feet, eating crumbs and whatever else was offered. But this had made them easy prey for the ship's cat, which ate 16 in one night. Many more died of natural causes, or flew overboard and were never seen again. This gentleman had set out with 120 birds from Hong Kong, and he arrived in Melbourne with about 40. This, though, was considered a big success. Some of the birds that the Society imported, such as the Java Sparrow, weren't suited to Australian conditions. But others, in particular the English House Sparrow, would survive and thrive. That these birds are often a pest wasn't used to anyone, anywhere. Wherever house sparrows are found, whether in their native range in England and Europe, or in other places where they were imported, such as the Americas, they've caused grief to farmers and to orchardists. Australian colonizers knew this well. In England in the 1840s, house sparrows had caused so much destruction that people had formed sparrow clubs. These were community groups dedicated to finding and killing the birds. Bounties on heads and eggs were funded out of donations and out of church rates. Armies of boys and men would scour the countryside for birds and nests, beheading sparrows in their tens of thousands and collecting eggs in their hundreds of thousands or even in their millions. As a young boy growing up in Devonport in the late 1850s and early 1860s, William Burns may very well have earned a few coins by hunting sparrows. Yet there was much debate as to whether this slaughter helped or hurt farmers. Commentators tried to weigh up what did more damage to crops, sparrows or the insects they ate. Sparrows were also so familiar in the landscape that a great deal of affection was felt for them even if they were destructive. Further, if you killed one, God would notice. After all, in Matthew 10, 29, 31, Jesus was recorded as saying, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground unperceived by your father. This was the inspiration for William Shakespeare to have Hamlet say, There is special providence in the fall of a sparrow. The argument about whether Sparrows did more harm than good, whether they should be killed or protected, was found everywhere, including where William Burns was growing up. In mid-December 1862, the Devon newspaper Western Daily Mercury reported with disgust on a Sparrow club that had claimed nearly 12,000 victims in the past year. Quote, These men have sinned against knowledge, for it has been now sufficiently demonstrated to convince any man that the sparrow is the true farmer's friend. That very same week, in nearby Exeter, the newspaper the Exeter Flying Post reported, While our valiant sparrow clubs are killing the farmer's friends, other countries are asking for them. A letter from Leipzig states that Mr Weber of that city, who has recently returned home after a long residence in Australia, has been charged by the Acclimatisation Society of Melbourne to send out to the colony as many German sparrows as he can possibly procure. Caterpillars and other insects commit such ravages in Australia, particularly in Victoria, that those birds would be most effectual means of destroying them. A great number will be shipped off in March next. The Sparrow matter was far from settled, and such arguments were continuing in the Australian colonial press too. But the Victorian Acclimatisation Society had decided that it knew best. In September 1863, at Royal Park in Melbourne, the gentlemen threw their birds and their caution to the wind. In this release of 160 small birds, there numbered 80 English sparrows. The newspaper The Farmer's Journal and Gardener's Chronicle approvingly reported that the birds were all, quote, strong on the wing. But not everyone was celebrating. In November 1863, a letter writer to the Melbourne Herald said, I should very much like to know what earthly good is expected to be obtained by the importation here of the common English sparrow. Back home, he reminded readers, sparrows were a pest. And here, they served no insect-eating purpose that small indigenous birds couldn't perform just as well and without the accompanying destruction. This writer's belief was that, for the acclimatizers, sparrows possessed only, quote, the merit of having been their familiar companions at home. Was this the real reason they'd been introduced? Because Edward Wilson and his cronies liked to hear them chirping and see them flitting about. In that year of 1863, the Acclimatisation Society spent a little over £3,500. £2,400 of this was a government grant. The Society's report for the year listed all the animals they'd introduced. Like some pretty but pestilent 12 days of Christmas, part of the list can be arranged to read seven white swans, six California quail, five cape pheasants, four silver grey rabbits, three chinchillas and, well, there was no partridge in a pear tree, at least not yet. But if you'd started with the largest number, you would have had the world's longest Christmas carol. 120 English sparrows. The little brown birds had topped the list, or as the society put it, the birds were now quote, introduced in sufficient number to ensure their permanence. Everything else about the English house sparrow would also help to ensure it survived and thrived. House sparrow pairs bond for life and per the name, they like to nest in or around man-made structures. A pair can breed for five seasons and each season they produce two to four clutches of three to six eggs. Sparrows can even breed all year round if it's warm enough. Though they do eat insects, they're also more inclined to eat seeds, fruits, and grains if easily available. English house sparrows were released into Victoria as it was undergoing rapid expansion thanks to the gold rush. Melbourne was well on its way to becoming marvelous And buildings were going up everywhere, many of them with the sort of architectural details that offered nesting opportunities to sparrows. The same was true of towns like Geelong, Ballarat and Bendigo. Indigenous lands were increasingly being turned into farms and orchards, and the climate was pretty much perfect. Dozens of sparrows quickly became hundreds and then thousands. Just five years into this acclimatization, in November 1868, the term sparrow nuisance appeared in the Age newspaper for the first time. Arthur Dyson, the owner of Northcote Nursery, wrote that until last year he'd had an annual healthy crop of grapes and cherries. This year, nothing. Sparrows had stripped his vines and trees as surely as if a plague of locusts had descended. He wrote... Three years ago, there were probably but a pair or so in our neighborhood. Now, their name is Legion. Mr. Dyson said that the noise made by these sparrows was far worse than that made by native birds that had been accused of being unmusical. As for their eating bugs, quote, I may state that I have not, as far as I have been enabled to observe, received any benefit from sparrows. Mr. Dyson said if the pests weren't exterminated quickly, it'd soon be impossible to grow fruit anywhere near populated areas. But action wasn't taken. Three years later, April 1871, Melbourne's leader newspaper said that the reproduction of the sparrows was, quote, truly astounding and almost incredible. In suburbs like Northcote, where there'd been just a pair a couple of seasons ago, there were now to be seen flocks of thousands. The paper said that nostalgia and sentiment had led to this situation. Quote, The first sight of the pert little stranger, and the first sound of his impudent chirp, roused all the home sympathies in every breast. At sight of the Old World Sparrow, folks forgot his misdeeds, forgot all about sparrow clubs, and, for old acquaintance' sake, afforded him protection and treated him as a friend. Soon, however, his voracious instincts and destructive propensities began to develop themselves in his new home. Now cultivators begin to find out the mistake that has been made and curses on the head of the sparrow and those who introduced it are both loud and deep. The leader newspaper called for the Acclimatisation Society, who it deemed responsible, to instigate a program of shooting the sparrows and examining the contents of their stomachs to see what they were feeding on. This would prove whether they were doing any good at all. But nothing was done. Six months later, in November 1871, the leader again opined, The sparrow, we fear, is destined to become one of the greatest curses in this country. The paper detailed how they were laying waste to farms, vineyards, orchards and gardens, quote, each and all in turn during the seasons. Seeds, seedlings, fruits and grains, nothing was spared. The leader blasted the acclimatisation society's members, saying that those men had no financial interest in the question. But cultivators did, and they were suffering the consequences. Quote, The rabbit and the thistle nuisances threatened to pale in the presence of the sparrow nuisance. The paper pointed out that rabbits could be used for their meat and fur and that thistle as it came into bloom could be used as food for livestock. But the sparrow had no such use. As for the acclimatization society's reaction, well, arrogant pretty much describes it. Their annual report for 1871 did contain a few paragraphs on the subject. First, they pointed to testimony from a few fellows who said that sparrows were doing their gardens good. Then they dismissed contradictory accounts. Edward Wilson's successor as society president reported that complaints, came from a small number of persons who were not all of a trustworthy character. He continued... The English people were naturally given to grumbling and not only the sparrows, but everything else introduced by the society would be found fault with by some. In the face of such sparrow nuisance denialism, a few informal sparrow shooting clubs were established, but the problem continued to worsen. In September 1874, at the Melbourne Athenaeum, a meeting was held by the Horticultural Society of Victoria and the Vine Growers' Associations in order to discuss what should be done. Various gentlemen testified at length about the massive losses they'd suffered. Blame was firmly and bitterly attributed to the Acclimatisation Society. It was suggested that the Victorian government ought to pay for a sparrow eradication program. After all, they'd given the Acclimatisation Society many thousands of pounds over the past decade. But the colonial government hadn't actually done the importing and the releasing of the birds. So best of luck getting political leaders to accept any responsibility or to pay for anything. Any solution would have to be a grassroots effort. The meeting resolved that sparrow clubs should be formed throughout Victoria. Bounties on heads and eggs would be paid, with these funds sourced from individuals and families, and via churches and councils. In other words, Victoria was going to resort to the same measures that had been used back home in England decades earlier. It's hard to argue that it hadn't been predictable and preventable. As an example of these efforts, in November 1875, the Collingwood Sparrow Club held its first meeting. So far, they'd received 900 heads and eggs. The bounties, a penny for a head, half that for an egg, were coming from donations. At this meeting, the club members expressed their hope that the Collingwood Council would see fit to fund their efforts, as other shire councils had done in other districts. The club members were also disappointed that some local men who had big fruit gardens were yet to take up arms against the sparrows and, in a similar vein, that the neighbouring towns of Fitzroy and Richmond were yet to join the war, and thus, quote, attack the enemy all round. In 1863, South Australia had been home to a single English sparrow, the sole survivor of a shipment of 100. This sparrow was auctioned for 11 shillings, and it lived a lonely life before dropping off the perch. But by the end of the 1870s, sparrows that had expanded westward from Victoria and that had been imported by private individuals had infested a large part of South Australia. The Evening Journal in October 1880 reported that two lads had, in one day, collected 2,000 eggs from nests they found on a single estate outside of Adelaide. Ten months later, In August 1881, the South Australian governor appointed a handful of eminent gentlemen to head up the Sparrow Commission. They were tasked with inquiring into the problem and considering steps for the destruction of the birds. What they came up with was hardly original. A bounty system. Sixpence per dozen sparrow heads and two shillings sixpence per hundred sparrow eggs. At least these monies, which were paid from October 1881, came from colonial coffers. In a little over 12 months, the government would pay out for some 36,000 heads and a quarter of a million eggs. Among the bounty hunters was John Burton Cleland, who was then about four years old. One afternoon, this enterprising and brave little boy climbed into a tree looking for eggs in nests. There were plenty. 40 all up. But little John faced a big problem. How was he going to get them out of the tree and back to earth when he needed both hands to climb down? A clever little chap with a scientific mind, he found the solution. He'd just pop five eggs at a time into his mouth. On Sunday, the 10th of December, 1882, around the time that little John Burton Cleland was stuffing his mouth with sparrow eggs, the 3 masted square-rigged British ship Douglas reached the anchorage at Semaphore, nine miles northwest of Adelaide. When officials came alongside, Captain John Wilson relayed the shocking news. More than two months ago, when the ship was off the coast of West Africa, the second mate, Henry Lowton had been stabbed and he died. The man responsible, sailor William Burns, had been kept safely in custody ever since. If the presence of a murderer aboard the Douglas had been bad luck, it hadn't manifested in malevolent ways. Captain Wilson had brought him back alive. Now, William Burns was to face justice. Constable Michael Shanahan of Port Adelaide Police was summoned. He boarded the ship and arrested Burns for the murder of Henry Lowton. The accused made no statement before he was taken ashore and to the lockup. Tomorrow morning, Burns would face a committal hearing in the local police court. Around the time that Burns went into his cell in Port Adelaide, a bird was coming out of its shell in a nest inside Adelaide jail. Both of these creatures were now living in the shadow of the death sentence. And though neither had any way of knowing it, the fates of these two jailbirds would forever be entwined. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Murder on the High Seas, which is part one of the three-part Forgotten Australia episode, The Birdman of Adelaide Jail. Part two, Dark Threats and Darker Secrets, and part three, Not Dead But Gone, will be on general release from next week but they're available now to Apple and Patreon supporters. The relevant links are in your show notes. If you've enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you could leave a rating or review via whichever podcast app you happen to use. As always, thanks for listening and thanks for supporting.